Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book Rakundra's First Cruise by Arthur Ransom, and this is part three of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, and there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast and get access to more exclusive material. Now on with the story. Chapter 6, Through the Moon Sound The actual entrance to the sound is a couple of miles wide, with a little island of Viralade on the western side and the larger mass of Verda on the eastern, each with its lighthouse. Then, though in some parts of it the shore recedes and in places are over 20 miles apart, the actual channel narrows, twists and turns with such sharpness that big ships have more than once gone aground through attempting a corner too fast or at a time when the current was too strong against them. I suppose there are few sections of sea chart on which so many wrecks are marked. There is, of course, no tide, but the water rises and falls according to the prevailing winds, which also determine the direction of the strong current in the narrows. The Russian battleship Slava is still to be seen high out of the water on Kumora Shoal. The British merchantman Toledo, after three years of waiting, was only last autumn hauled off the shoal by the Arikstone. Few British skippers care to attempt the passage by night, and one of the most careful, who did so venture, lost several plates from his ship's bottom as his reward. We, of course, were attempting it by day, and as dawn broke and at 5.30 we had Paternoster lighter beam, the wind strengthened mightily from the south, and from the slant of the spar boys we could see that we had not only the wind, but also a strong current with us. We had the most favourable possible conditions. At the same time, I was not going to take any risks on Rakundra's maiden trip. With our shallow draught, we could, no doubt, have cut off many corners. We draw, even with the centreboard down, no more than seven and a half feet. Our good friend Baltibor, on her way to Raval from Riga, avoids the sound and goes round outside the islands if she draws over 14 feet. I decided to attribute 14 feet of draught to the modest, the admirable Rakundra, and pilot her through exactly as if she were a big ship. In this way, we should have ample margin for the correction of any errors due to the eccentricities of current or the like. Passing Paternoster, we opened Quivast on the island of Moon, a little anchorage where there is a landing stage, a coast guard station, an inn and a telegraph. I had meant to stop there an hour or two, but the conditions for passing the sound were so good that I visited Quivast only through the binoculars. Two or three schooners were at anchor there, waiting for a favourable wind to take them south. The inn looked tempting enough, but there it was. That glum log of ours was spinning merrily as a top. The sun was bright, the wind fair and strong, and the wooded island of Shildau showed ahead, through the glasses. I could already see one of the pair of beacons that, kept in line over our stern, would guide us through the next bit of the channel. After all, there was plenty of stopping places ahead, and we could visit Quivast home and bound. So I put the island of Moon resolutely aside and looked over the bows at Shildau and searched the pale blue windswept water before us for a bell and light buoy, which I presently found. Rakundra foamed past it, and I brought it in line over her stern with the lighthouse on Serot's point, the western end of Verda. The sun shone, the wind blew, and there was the second beacon on Shildau, at first hard to see, close down on the shore under a background of dark green pines, and then Shildau was a beam. Then on our quarter, and behold, 
that dimly discerned second beacon grew clearer, separated itself from the trees, stood out, moved slowly nearer and nearer, close to, and at last was in line with the first. Up to starboard with the helm, over with the booms, and off goes Rakundra, with those two beacons in line over her stern, through the narrowest stretch of channel, a lane between the shoals close by the northeast corner of the island of Moon. And there, sure enough, on the low green ridge of that island, seeming at first to be in impossible positions, but straightening themselves out as we sped along, were two tall beacons of open ironwork, fantastic, unmistakable things, each with a dark iron corkscrew or snake twisting from top to bottom in a narrow iron cage. Woods, windmills, green pasture land, houses and those beacons looking like Mr. Wells's monsters from another planet striding over the earth, all changed places in a vast quadrille as Rakundra hurried on her way. Suddenly the two monsters began noticeably to draw nearer to each other, they were within shouting distance of each other. They were in close converse. They were one. The corkscrew of one monster linked with the corkscrew of the other. The two cages merged into a single cage and then to port with the helm and sharply and Rakundra, shaking the waters from her beloved nose, was off again almost at right angles from her former course while the Shildau beacons slid rapidly apart and this new pair remained in magic unity. I took a bearing of the moon beacons and compared it with the chart and got additional confirmation of the error I had assumed from our Runo landfall. That was at 10 minutes past 8 in the morning and the log was reading 38.4. Half an hour later it was reading 41.6 so that even its pessimism was compelled to admit that Rakundra was doing her six knots. We were now in apparently open water but the chart was of a different opinion and, mindful of our temporary 14 feet, we kept those beacons in line for seven miles when we passed the light buoy in the middle of the sound. Away to the west was the wide, shallow inland sea between the islands of Dago and Osel. To the east, we could see small scraps of islets and knew that beyond them was the narrow bay of Matsulo, from which, more than 700 years ago, the Estonians sailed out and away to Sweden and burnt Sigtuna, the Swedish capital, and carried away its silver gates. After passing the light buoy, we held on our course for another seven miles or so when we sighted the murderous Erikstone, a square rock sticking up alone out of the waters, a rock no bigger than a king's throne, as it is said by some to have been, a rock painted all over in red by an ingenious friend of Captain Conger, with whom, as you shall hear in another place, I spent two nights on the rack of the Toledo, a ground upon the shoal of which this stone is the uppermost point. Then the water had been lower, and there was a little island to be seen, and the seabirds upon it, but now there was nothing but the stone itself. Far away to the west was the coast of Dago, and with strong glasses we could see the white house and a red roof by the little harbour of Heltemar. Far away to the east, a fantastic iron beacon rose out of the sea, showing where was the narrow passage to Hapsal, between the shoals of Odroraga and Rukaraga. We meant to return that way, but we were moving too fast to have time to spare for dreaming about passages to come. And there was the Eric Stone, there on the starboard bow, the dark woods on the island of Worms, and there, as if floating in the sea, the handful of low buildings on the tiny island of Harry, and somewhere ahead, another bellboy to be found and passed to make the channel along the eastern side of Harry and avoid the rocks off worms. 
The sun shone. The wind blew stronger and stronger. Short, stout little waves raced us, caught us, passed foaming and gurgling under our keel and rushed ahead of us to the open Baltic. We were off worms almost before we had left the Eric Stone, or so it seemed, and there, sheltering under the wooded island of worms, were the vessels bound south, schooners and cutters at anchor, watching us with envy as we flew past, waiting for the wind to change that was no good to them and suited us so well. Worms, like Runo, is one of the Swedish islands belonging to Estonia. In all the harbours along the coast of this part of the Baltic, you meet stout little ships with Swedish names and the words Fran Wormsel painted on their broad sterns. You can tell a ship from the Isle of Worms at first sight. You have no need to seek the painted letters. No others have the same combination of beam and lofty freeboard fore and aft. A beautiful sheer these little ships have, with a high after deck, the sides of which tumble home with an effect no less practical than lovely, a downward curve to the broad midships, and then a proud upward sweep to the bows. In every line the sense of solidity, breadth, ability to keep the seas and an unbroken tradition of simple-minded builders. The ships are mostly iron-fastened nowadays, but the older art is preserved, and I have seen fine schooners not more than five years old, in which the fastenings, like timbers and plankings, were of wood. For a moment, we thought to turn aside, to slip in here under the lee of the island, to make this a stage of our journey and to talk with some of the little anchored fleet. But what would a worm-so skipper think of us if we wasted a fair wind? It was not yet noon, and the wind showed signs of rising still more. The barometer had fallen and was still falling. The wind would hold, and going at this speed, we should be in Raval before midnight. So, Wormso slipped astern, and we held on out into the Baltic, still among shoals, but with nothing visible on either hand, except the glaucous white-splashed water. Chapter 7. Worms to Pekarot for some time we steered north by west through a waste of water increasingly disturbed, looking south over Rakundra's stern and keeping a dark pinewood promontory on the south end of Worms just open of the slim, gleaming white tower of Saxbaness light on the northwest corner of the island. The wind, now really blowing pretty hard, kept shifting and more than once we had to jibe. We passed one spar boy, then another, then found the long expected light boy and north of that a group of four spar boys and a solitary pair. Spar boys are the loneliest things in the sea. For those who do not know them, I should perhaps have said before that they are tall posts anchored to the bottom of the sea to mark the shallows. On their ends in these parts they carry brooms, one or two, and according to the number of the brooms and to their position, the handles of the brooms being up or down, the mariner learns on which side of the buoy is the danger. The brooms do not long survive the buffeting of wind and water, and these lone sticks with their draggle-tailed besoms far out at sea have a most melancholy appearance in themselves, although the sailor finding his way over the water is glad enough to recognise them and be assured of his position. We rushed past that solitary pair, jibed for the last time, and stood away east-north-east for the narrow passage across the reef that almost joins Oldensholm to Spithman. The wind strengthened in successive stout breaths, and then settled down in the southeast to blow considerably harder than Rakunda had yet had opportunity of feeling. We were some eight or ten miles off the land, and the wind, blowing since the afternoon of yesterday, 
had had plenty of time to get up the waves, nothing, of course, compared to those there must have been on the other side of the gulf, but still enough to make a pretty fair test of Vakundra's quality. With her broad beam and heavy keel, she stood up to the wind magnificently, of course, but as she dropped between each wave, something fairly thundered within her, shaking the whole ship. It was the centreboard, and we hauled it up for, with the wind broad on her beam and plenty of it, the difference it made to her sailing, if any, for she is by no means flat-bottomed, was fully discounted by the pounding effect on our nerves. Even so, we were left with a noise to which to grow accustomed, the tremendous crashing of the water under her weather bilge keel as she sank into the trough. As soon as we knew what it was, we stopped worrying, but before we knew we had crawled all over inside her, feeling her sides, inspecting the bolt heads of the three-and-a-half-ton keel, and generally expecting unpleasant surprises. Once we knew what it was, it rapidly became unnoticeable, and we were able wholeheartedly to rejoice in Rakundra's manner of dealing with waves, a thing beautiful to see. We took plenty of spray on deck, but no heavy water at all. She just jumps out of them like a dinghy, said the ancient, restored to happiness after doubts during the centreboard's orchestral performances as to whether the keel was adrift. In the general buffeting, she got between leaving the moon sound and coming into shelter of the land by Spithman, only one thing gave way. In the working drawings for her, there had been a neat galvanised iron saddle and ring by way of the gaff jaws, but the builder, saving money, had not bought it, and at the last minute had made wooden jaws with holes for the lacing board far too big, thereby weakening a contraption which, even apart from that, was rather ineffectively held together with screws. Further, the shrouds of the mainmast fell rather far aft, and the mainsail being very tall, the gaff tended to swing forward and press against the shroud, putting an unfair strain on the jaws. We had heard a loud crack aloft, but nothing had come down, and from the steering well we could see no damage. After sighting the low island of Olden's home with its lighthouse, and finding the two boys that marked the passage just north of the promontory of Spithman, where more ships were taking refuge under the lee of the rising ground with its six windmills, we heard another crack. I set a course to take us north of Sandgrund and the rocks beyond Spithman, and left the tiller to the ancient, and went forward to take a look at things. I saw at once that the parallel rings of the gaff jaws were hanging loose, and that the gaff jaws were broken, and that the broken side of the jaws was jammed in place by a halyard, which, bar taut, was the only thing that kept the gaff from breaking loose. This was pretty unpleasing, but after watching it for a minute or two, I became convinced that nothing would shift it, so long as we held the wind on the starboard side, which we should do, until we came to Raval Bay. In any case, we were moving finely, and this place, with Sandgrund, Grassgrund, and the Locust Rock, all to be avoided, was not the one to choose for a stoppage for repairs. We held on, and Rakundra, settling down to her work, justified our trust by the speed with which she hurried eastward. At 6.5 we had Grassunder beam, and saw the lonely rock well out to sea, where in fine weather there is often a broad space of visible ground. On our starboard bows were the islands of Rugu, off which we had been embalmed one summer's night in Kittywake. And there was Pekarot Lighthouse, tall on its cliff, the witness of how many of our struggles in the recalcitrant but lamented slug. In the bay on the hither side of Pekarot was Baltic Port. We were already in familiar waters, and with the thought of Baltic Port, our pleasant anchorage of last summer, came doubts as to the wisdom of standing on for a in the dark, 
through what in any other boat we should have called a storm, with so serious a piece of trouble as broken gaff jaws awaiting attention aloft. We should have to beat into Raval Bay anyhow, when the gaff jaws would infallibly come down. It would then be dark. Better beat into Rugawick to Baltic port, here, now, in daylight, when, if anything went wrong, we could see what we were about. So, rather nervously, we hauled in the sheets, put the helm down for a moment and stood close-hauled into Rugawick. But we were already too late. The deep bay, running south-east into the land, left us again without protection. We were bucketing into a head sea. Rakundra's speed fell off and the twilight was upon us. It became imperative to have a look at those gaff jaws while it was yet light enough to see. The ancient lowered away the peak, which stuck, of course, in the makeshift blocks, then loosened the throat halyard when the whole thing came down in tumultuous and entangled rush. Within a minute, we had learned that with her staysail and mizzen setting as badly as they then were, Rakundra would have a very difficult time beating against a heavy sea under those two sails alone. She absolutely refused to stay. I hasten to explain that now, when we have put things right and given her the tackle she deserves, after generally clearing up the abounding errors in her rigging, she now tacks with the utmost regularity. Instead, we had to jibe her each time we went about. Now, Rugawick is a narrow inlet deep to either shore, but with rocks along both sides and an awkward reef running out north of the harbour, which is well into the inlet on the eastern side. It grew perfectly dark. The harbour lights appeared, but there were no lights whatsoever on the Rugu Island shore opposite the harbour. We could not tell, therefore, how near we were to the land when on the tack that took us in that direction. The wind was extremely strong. Indeed, if it had been weaker, our position would perhaps have been worse. Our side lights would not burn, and the binnacle light blew out every time it was lit. We found ourselves not snugly making repairs in Baltic port as we had hoped, but rushing wildly in the dark from one side to the other of the bay, desperately wearing round when we thought we could afford to go no farther, and gaining absolutely nothing in our struggle towards the green light, which meant, as I thought then, a well-known harbour. Providence perhaps was with us, for as we were to learn a fortnight later, if we had gone in there with the wind behind us, as it would have been if only we could have made the entrance, which is from the south, we should almost certainly have been smashed up. The harbour had been halved in size since last year. The open space through which I should have tried to go to my old anchorage had been blocked by a new pier of black tarred timbers, quite invisible at night, and my old anchorage behind it was high and dry out of the water. I do not like to think of what would have happened if, with that wind, we had raced into that blind alley in the dark. However, we had no chance of doing any such thing. With the darkness, the wind increased to a gale, and our position became rather seriously uncomfortable, for it became clear that, so far from gaining, we were actually losing ground, and that with each tack we were coming nearer to the reef instead of farther into the bay beyond it. At this point, the Ancient and I had our only quarrel. He wanted to get as near the harbour mouth as we could, drop anchor, and try to get a line ashore. I knew the place well from other years, and so knew that the depth was far too great to give us a chance of doing anything but lose an anchor, and that if we got anywhere near the shore, unless actually in the harbour mouth, we should infallibly go on a rock. I was therefore for admitting that Baltic port was a mistake, for wearing for the last time, getting well out into the middle of the bay, 
and clear of the reef, and then putting the helm up and running out to sea, until beyond the precipitous point of Pecorot, when I should bring her up into the wind, and remain so till morning. There was a little breathless bitterness on the subject as we shouted at each other and tried to hear what the other was shouting back, and it ended in Rakundra pretending she had never wanted to put her nose into Baltic port at all. She stopped bucketing into the wind, and with sudden restfulness and three times the speed, flew out of the bay with the wind at her heels to the open sea, where she was more at home. The ancient watched Pecorot light till from the cliff top it looked down over our stern, and then went below and to sleep. There was, after all, nothing more to be done. Well, that's the end of today's reading, and I hope you enjoyed it. It brings me so much pleasure to be able to read these books and to bring them back out into the light from dusty library shelves and uh, share with you the fantastic uh, stories which we're, we're seeing unfold here. This book, uh, Rakundra's First Cruise, is 100 years old this year, and yet I think all of us are already able to see that with a great writer like Arthur Ransom, um, you've got some really special way of connecting through to people who love doing the same things we love to do out on a boat, enjoying themselves. So if you like this kind of content, if you want to hear more of it, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Five dollars a month helps to support this podcast, which goes out 20 times a month. But starting now in January of 2023, there's a whole extra series of books being read over on Patreon. Um, those are available for patrons of every level. So a whole extra series of books there in the same line and things I'm sure you'll find very enjoyable. So that's patreon.com forward slash the mariner to support the podcast and get your hands on those extra sailing books. Great. Well, thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.